You're listening to the Grace Through Faith weekly podcast. For more information, go to mygtf.org. We hope you enjoy. Good morning. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. How are y'all? Doing good? Hey, um, before I jump into um, today's message, we're going to start a new series, but I want to give you an opportunity to uh, sow financially into what we're doing here at GTF. Um, we get a question often, is like, hey, do we take offerings? Uh, and it's like, yeah, we do. Um, but it's like, here's the thing, what we've done with offerings um, from the time that the church started, is we really do want that to be an act of worship for you, um, not, not to give under compulsion because we're really pushing you to, but we also want to give you an opportunity on how we actually do that. And so we're going to pass some buckets here in just a second. But before we do that, I want to give you a challenge today. In your journey to becoming a generous person, one of the really um, big values that we have as a, as a church family is that we want to be generous. We're generous in what we do um, with our finances here at the church, personally in my life. Uh, but we also want to lead people into that place. But I also know that it doesn't happen overnight, that it's a journey, that it takes step after step. And so this morning, the challenge that I want to give you is to take a step in your journey of becoming a generous person. This is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And here's the, the way that I've seen this journey go in my own life is, is there's a day in my journey with God whenever God challenged me to become a contributor. And really, if, if you haven't begun to contribute to what we're doing ministry-wise here at GTF yet, I want to encourage you to do that. Um, it really doesn't take a lot. There's no commitment there as far as how much that looks like, but to just contribute in your time, but also in your finances to facilitate financially what happens. But the next step that, that you begin to take in your journey of generosity is to become a tither. You know what the Bible teaches in the Word of God is that we return to God one-tenth, the first fruits of everything that we get. So a tenth of everything I personally give to God, that I return to the Lord of every paycheck that I get, every paycheck April gets. We also do that as a church. We take 10% of our budget every single year, and we, we generously sow into other ministries, not our own endeavors, but other ministries and other mission projects here locally, a lot of it here locally, but also beyond in the state of Texas and even overseas. But then the last step that you take from going, being a contributor to being a tither is to becoming a generous person. What that verse just said that I just shared with you is that God loves a cheerful giver. And what the Bible says about the tithe is that whenever we tithe and we give God a tenth of our income, we're not even actually giving. In Malachi chapter 3, it says, return the tithe of the Lord. In the Old Testament, it teaches about the first fruits offering, that that is actually holy unto the Lord. It's God's money, not even my money. And so whenever I endeavor to become a generous person, I'm, in, I'm endeavoring to get to a place where everything that I own is God's. That he has rights to everything. And we're going to talk about living a sacrificial life today in, in my message. But I just want to give you an opportunity to begin to set your foot on that path of becoming a generous person. Amen? So here's the way that we give here at GTF. There's, uh, there's three different ways on um, the screen. There's always offering boxes if you want to give uh, live in person. But today we're going to pass some buckets. If you're online, there's going to be some information in the, in the chat. If you're on YouTube, you can go to our website, mygtf.org. 
and you can go to give, and you can get that there. And so if you would, if you're here in the building today, if you'll take those buckets that are under your seat, if there is one under your seat, if you'll take that and pass it down, and our ushers will come by and grab those. Here's the last thing I'll say about giving. If you, uh, if you are a, a, a tither, if you're a contributor, thank you so much um, for what you do to help support what God does here um, through our church. Um, if it wasn't for the finances that we have, we wouldn't be able to accomplish what we are able to do on a week-in, week-out basis to change people's lives with the gospel of Jesus. So thank you guys so much for your giving. All right, if you have your Bibles, open those up this morning to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, and I'm going to start a new series this morning titled The Jesus People. And whenever I was kind of thinking about um, what I wanted to do throughout this month and what I wanted to, what the Lord was kind of stirring in my heart, I just kind of been, began to think about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And, and I read this passage in the Gospel of Matthew whenever, right before Jesus was born, okay? And so right before Jesus came on the scene and uh, b- before his mother Mary gave birth to him, an angel showed up to his father, Joseph, and he spoke this word over him because Joseph was kind of reluctant to take Mary. If you, if you know the story, he wasn't for sure what was going on because they were betrothed and he knew that she was pregnant And he didn't really know how that happened. And an angel showed up to him in the middle of the night and said, this child is from the Lord. And he began to prophesy over into Joseph's life of what his son would actually do. And it says, she, Mary, will bear a son. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I, I... I love the fact that God has saved me from my sins, but there's those two words, his people, are really important. Because whenever you look at the kind of the delineation of what people believe about Jesus, they fall into a couple of camps, and you're either a Jesus person or you're not a Jesus person. There's some of us that are kind of in that gray area where like, I'm kind of liking the Jesus thing, and I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know if I'm a Jesus person yet, but I'm kind of warming up to the idea. And so this this idea of Jesus will save his people from their sins is a really important thing to get solidified in your life. And so over the course of this this series, we're going to look at the Jesus people and who the Jesus people are in the Gospels and, and even now in, in our day and time. And as we look at these people, the thing that I, I, I'd notice about the Jesus people, the people who followed Jesus, they were the sinners. They were the scoundrels. They were the villains. They were the rejects in Jesus' day. The crowds that followed Jesus were not the acceptable people. And as you look at these people, the, these were the people that Jesus sought out. They were the people that he came for. He was never ashamed to call them his people. Luke 19 says the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And listen, if you're not lost here, if you don't need any sins forgiven, then you're probably not a Jesus person. But if you do have sin in your life, if you are in a place in your life where you're lost and you don't really know what direction to go, then Jesus is the one. He is, like we talked about last week, and he is the light of the world that can lighten your path for you so that you can follow in his footsteps, that you can follow his direction in your life. And so I know that 
you know, all of the people that followed Jesus weren't rejects, but I do know this, that not all of us that began to follow Jesus stayed in the place that he found us. See, Jesus... He saves us from our sin and he begins to translate us. As Peter says later on in the, in the New Testament, he says that he took us from the kingdom of darkness and led us into the kingdom of light. He called us no longer sinners. He calls us now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, na- a holy nation, a people of his own possession. See, if you're a Jesus person, you definitely get, God meets you in the place of sin, but then he washes you from those sins and he puts you into the place of becoming a royal priest, a holy nation. So, here's the thing that I want to do this morning, is not all of the people, I realize this, that are Jesus people were rejects. Not all of them were poor. Not all of them were unsavory people, right? There were some of them that were powerful. There were some of them that were rich. There were some of them that were famous. That is true. If you look through the Gospels, there are people who did have reputation, who did have possessions. But listen, whenever you really listen to Jesus and his teachings, the fact that their their riches and reputation and social standing, they actually were not an aid to their faith. They were actually a hindrance. We'll look at that here in just a second, but here's the thing that I want to, the place that I want to start this morning as we talk about the Jesus people. I want to talk about the characteristics of what make up Jesus people. As he takes us from sin and, and the kingdom of darkness and he leads us into the kingdom of light, there's some things that begin to change and he sanctifies us and we become something different. A new man, a new woman. And there are these characteristics that make up Jesus' people. What are those characteristics? The first one that we're going to talk about this morning is that Jesus' people sacrifice. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 19. And this was a message that Jesus preached, that Jesus' people, if you want to follow me, then you actually have to live a lifestyle of being sacrificial. This was a message that he preached often. It was something that was consistent as you listen to his sermons and you follow his ministry and what it was that he was doing in people's lives and what he was actually calling them to. He was calling his people to live a life of sacrifice. In Matthew chapter 19, read the account of a rich man who comes and talks to Jesus and this conversation is profound. This rich man, he actually asks Jesus some really perfect, honestly, the perfect questions. And so I want you to pay attention to him. It says, And behold, a man came up to to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's an important question. It's something that every single one of us should ask in our lifetime. And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments, talking about the law of Moses. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to Jesus, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
Now, here's the thing that I want you to see, because we're going to continue reading in the story here in just a second, but the first thing that I want to pay attention to is the conversation that Jesus has with this rich young man. It says he had great possessions. He was wealthy. And he came to Jesus, and he had two questions. The first question was, what good thing, what good deed, what goodness do I have to exhibit to be acceptable to God and inherit eternal life? And Jesus redirects this young man's question away from his self-righteousness. He says, what do you you mean good? There's only one that's good. And in essence, Jesus begins to lay the groundwork for the gospel that he was going to fulfill and the new covenant that he was going to institute. And he began to try to steer this young man in the direction of, you can do no great thing that will give you credibility with God. You can't do enough good to inherit eternal life. So he directs him, he's like, so what do I need to do? He's like, well, just keep the commandments. Follow the covenant that has been given to you, in essence, until the next one comes. We, you read about all, all, a lot of this in Romans, as, as the Apostle Paul begins to talk about the translation from the old covenant into the new covenant. But Jesus begins to kind of lead the groundwork for what was to come after the cross. Well, then... The young man has the second question. He says, all that I've done since I was a kid, I've been very faithful in all of the the, the law and especially the Ten Commandments, what Moses taught us to observe. I've observed all those things. What else do I lack? That's probably the best question he asked all day. So I've done all the good stuff that I need to do, right? What else do I lack? And he says, sacrifice it all to follow me. If I was going to sum up what Jesus said He said, sell everything that you have, get into a mode in your life where you're willing to lay it all down for me. Sacrifice everything that you have for me, and then you'll have eternal life. See, Jesus unapologetically calls his people to a lifestyle of sacrifice. This isn't a one-time thing. This is a for-all-time thing. That whenever you want to become a Jesus person, you're signing up for a sacrificial life. See, Jesus didn't just talk about this right here in Matthew chapter 19. He talked about it everywhere that he went. That if people wanted to follow him, that there was actually a cost to doing that. Now, here's the thing that happens next because I think this is interesting. Because if you get the scene, here's this rich young man and he comes to Jesus. They have this really wonderful conversation. It's pretty deep. It's pretty powerful. And Jesus gives him the solution to the question that he's asking. And he turns sorrowful because he had great possessions. And in essence, what he said was, I don't think I can pay that price. You asked for a sacrifice that's too expensive, and it says that he left. Sad. And then Jesus sees the teachable moment that he has, and he turns to his people, his disciples, And he has a different conversation with them. I think that it's really important that you get this one. Look at verse 23. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were probably, what you're thinking right now, greatly astonished. That's a big deal. 
Rich people can't get into heaven? No, that's not what he said. He just said it's hard. Like I told you earlier, the riches of this young person or the riches in our life, they actually aren't an aid for our faith. They're a hurdle. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that it isn't impossible, but it is hard. His disciples were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, with God, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. Now, I think that this conversation that Jesus has with his people, with his disciples, right after with this rich young man, is just as profound as the first one. Because he gives instruction and he teaches two things real quickly to his disciples. And I think that these two things are something that you should have deep inside of your heart if you want to become a Jesus person. If you want to live a sacrificial life, here's the first thing that Jesus taught his disciples that day. Riches are a hindrance, not a help to following Jesus. See, you don't have to be poor to become a follower of Christ, but your wealth does have to be surrendered. See, the conclusion that we automatically think is, well, crud, i got to get rid of all my stuff in order to follow Jesus. And, and Jesus is basically saying, hey, listen, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This is a heart thing. If you will just surrender everything to me, I'll actually return it all. Here's the second thing that Jesus taught. Whatever you sacrifice for him will be returned exponentially. I want you to look at some math for just a second. Patricia, if you'll, uh, if you'll go to the next slide. No. That's not it. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so you know what ROI, return on investment is. How many of y'all have a 401k and two people? Y'all need to do some retirement planning, okay? <laughs> this is my one pastoral little lecture for today. Um, okay, so ROI, if you, if you make an investment into the stock market and you got 100% ROI, would you be happy? Absolutely. An, a normal year in investing, if you, get, if you can get 10% a year on your 401k, you would be a happy person, right? 10% is a wonderful ROI. But if you got 100% ROI, you'd be dancing in the street, right? That means that your, your money doubled, okay? 100% ROI is a doubling of your money, but that's not what Jesus said. He said he will return 100-fold. 100-fold, that Greek word for 100-fold means 100 times, not 100%, 100 per times, 100 times, okay? So look at this next. I'll just kind of break this down for you so you can have some dollars with this. So if you invested $1,000 in the stock market and you got a 100% return in the next year, you would then end up with $2,000, correct? Okay, follow me. But if you invested $1,000 and you got a 100-fold return, it's 100 times, not 100%. See, here's the thing about investing in the kingdom and following Jesus and sacrificing him for him. 
He says that he will, it will be returned to you exponentially, not fractionally. Whenever you and I sacrifice or invest in the earth realm, there is a fractional return. 100%, 50%, 20%, those are fractional returns. It's one-fifth, one-half, 75% is three-fourths, right? It's a fractional return. But whenever you invest in Christ, whenever you sacrifice for him, you get exponential. It's a multiplier. 100 times it will be returned back to you. See, what, what Jesus' disciples, of course, it was Peter that brought this up, right? It's a little bit selfish to ask this question, but he's like, hey, look at what we left. We left everything for you, Jesus. What do we get? And he said, listen, nobody. See, the 12 weren't just the special ones. It's all of Jesus' people. Nobody who sacrifices or leaves behind forsakes relationships or possessions or jobs, or reputation, whatever it is that you sacrifice for God, it, nobody who does that will not receive a return. I will pay them back a hundred times whatever they sacrifice for me. I wonder what the rich young man's response would have been if he would have known that principle. See, here's the thing that Jesus taught his disciples. Number one, that your wealth is in the way. Not that you have to be poor to follow Jesus, but your wealth does have to be surrendered. And anything that Jesus asks of you will be returned to you multiplied. That's good news. It should be a motivational thing inside of me to go, okay, God, this life of sacrifice that you're asking me to live, I'm game. I'm up for the challenge. Because listen, sacrifice always hurts. It never feels real good. That's why it's called sacrifice. Something dies in a sacrifice. Did you know that? Whenever something is sacrificed, something dies. And so there's something that God is wanting to do inside of us whenever he asks us to sacrifice. You cannot get away from this reality if you want to be a Jesus person. Jesus calls his people to a lifestyle of sacrifice. All throughout the Bible, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, probably one of his most famous sermons, he, re, he relays this same principle in a nutshell. He says in verse 3 of chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now again, you don't have to be full poor to follow Jesus, but your possessions do have to be surrendered. What is spiritual poverty? Spiritual poverty is getting to a place where you own nothing and God owns it all. It is the true place of being a steward. That God owns everything in my life and I'm just here to manage it is basically what we're saying. When God owns everything in my life, then I inherit the kingdom. It's a pretty good trade, if you ask me. If I'll surrender it all for him, I get a whole bunch back. It's almost like an exponential thing. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Romans chapter 12, he talks about this as well. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Listen, Paul was relaying the same principle and he was saying, listen, who is the sacrifice that's on the altar? Well, it was Jesus on the cross. But now that I'm a Jesus person... The living sacrifice is me. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. This is our act of worship. 
that we live a sacrificial life for him. Now look at Luke chapter 14. So I showed you Luke chapter 19. I'm just trying to show you this is something that Jesus consistently preached. Over and over and over again. If you want to be one of his followers, if you want to be a Jesus person, live a sacrificial life. Expect that. In Luke chapter 14, now I'm going to read you a hard passage, okay? Are you okay with that? You ready to to eat some steak? Because this is hard to swallow. You're going to have to chew this up a little bit. It may take you all throughout next week. You can come back to this passage and chew on it some more. But listen, he's going to say some hard things here in just a second, okay? Y'all ready? Okay, let's read this. Verse 25 says, Now, great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children or brothers or sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now when Jesus shares this same principle of sacrificial lifestyle, if you want to be a Jesus person, in this passage, he goes beyond your possessions. He he kind of starts meddling in your relationships. See, Jesus, I'm convinced of this. He doesn't want a little bit of you. He wants all. He wants all of me. He wants everything. And it's like earlier whenever we passed buckets and I was asking you for an offering and, hey, would you sow into the ministry that's here? Would you worship the Lord in your giving and all those things? Whenever we do those things and there's this ask of us, sometimes there's this kind of like a, uh, why you want something from me? Listen, if you want to be a Jesus person, you can't ever get away from that. He wants it all. Why does he want it all? Because he's greedy? No, because something inside of you and something inside of me has to die. See, that's what Jesus is talking. The cost of following him is that we have to lay down our lives. Galatians 2.20 says, It is no longer I who live, for I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And if you want that reality of Christ now living inside of you, you have to die. That's the sacrifice. Jesus wants your relationships. Jesus wants your possessions. Jesus wants your loyalty. He wants everything. And as you give him everything, he will return it to you blessed a hundred times. Better than what you could ask or imagine. Whatever the reality of good is in your life now, it's way better. But it requires a sacrifice. Count the cost. We have to, if we're going to become Jesus people, consider what it's actually going to cost us. I can remember in my life whenever I was wrestling with becoming a Jesus person, and I knew that I wasn't a Jesus person. I knew that I was still stuck in my sin. 
but I, I liked the life that I had kind of created. It was terrible now that I look back on it on this side of my decisions. But back then, it was hard to convince me that there was a better path forward. And I can remember whenever I finally got to a breaking point, this was one of the questions that I was wrestling with. What is the cost? What is it that you want from me, Jesus? And this is the place that Jesus started with me. He didn't start with my possessions. He started with my relationships. I want your friends. Let me pick your friends for you. And that was hard for me. I didn't say yes. I kind of was like that rich young man who went away because he had to sacrifice his money. If I had to sacrifice my friends, I don't know that I can do this. I don't know that I can follow you. I don't know that I want to be, and I wouldn't say that. I did want to be a Jesus person. I just wasn't really willing to pay that price yet. But after consequence and after devastation and after, after all of this carnage in my life began to pile up, I began to look at my friends and I go, you know, they're not really great for me. Maybe Jesus is right. And it was after devastation, after devastation, after devastation that I finally decided, okay, I'm going to give this a try. What do I have to lose? And the day that I decided to become a Jesus person and allow him to dictate what my life looked like, everything changed. It didn't change overnight as far as my relationship goes, but it changed gradually. And listen, I'm in a place in my life now where God still asks me to sacrifice things, but man, it's way better than ever before. A hundred times better, no doubt in my mind. If you want to be a Jesus person, you have to live a sacrificial life. Jesus is never going to stop asking you to sacrifice something for him. There's this thing that happens in my relationship, and I, I bet it happens in yours, is that there's times in my, in my journey with Jesus, and I'm praying, or maybe I'm just driving down the street, and I'm wrestling with some things, and Jesus is trying to pull me into a new place, and he knows that I need to sacrifice something so that something can die inside of me. And he'll whisper something in my spirit, hey, Jory, would you give me blank? Doesn't matter what it is, fill in the blank, but what is, what is in your blank? What is it that Jesus asks you or maybe right now in your life is asking you to sacrifice for him? See, if we want to be Jesus people, if we are Jesus people, he's never going to stop asking for a sacrifice. The Apostle Paul said, I implore you. It's like there's this, this, this in, imperative thing inside of you to try to pull us into the place of being living sacrifices, that we live a lifestyle that says, God, what do you want me to do? Well, I want you to raise your hands and worship. Well, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, something inside of you has to die. I want you to, to, to give to that person that you know has a need. But Lord, that's embarrassing or that takes boldness or all those different things. Do you understand that God is never going to stop asking you to do those things? And as soon as that thing gets comfortable and easy for you, then he's going to grow you into the next season of challenging and sacrificing and killing the you that's still left so that he can live even more. There's one other person that I want to talk about this morning that's, that was a Jesus person. It was even before Jesus' time, and that's Abraham. If you don't know the story of Abraham that I'm going to talk about, it's in Genesis chapter 22. I'd encourage you to go read it this week. It's inspiring. Because Abraham was a Jesus person before Jesus was born, right? Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, was, was in 
the earth among us and doing work, right? But Abraham didn't know him as Jesus. He just knew God, right? God's name hadn't even been revealed to man yet. But Abraham knew him. And God made this promise to Abraham. If you know Abraham's story, he didn't have a kid and he wanted a kid because he wanted to have an heir and somebody to pass his legacy on to. And so through a lot of pain and a, and a really long journey of, of not having kids, not being able to have kids, he and his wife have Isaac, his son. And in Genesis chapter 22, God, who promised that he would give him Isaac, came to Abraham and he asked him a question. He whispered in Abraham's spirit and he said, hey, Abraham, would you give me Isaac? That was his blank that was filled in for God. It says in Genesis chapter 2 that God showed up to Abraham and it says that Abraham's faith was tested. And God came to him and says, Abraham, I want you to give me your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac. See, God knew exactly what he was asking for. He was not apologetic that he was asking for the most precious possession in Abraham's life. He said, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac, and I want you to offer him to me as a burnt offering, as a literal sacrifice. Now that's kind of yucky to us, but in Abraham's day, that was kind of a normal pagan thing. It didn't happen every day, but it happened regularly enough that people sacrificed their children to pagan gods. And so it wasn't a foreign concept to Abraham. He knew exactly what God was asking him to do, and he knew exactly how precious, how high of a price God was asking him to pay to become a Jesus person, to become one who followed God. Now, I don't know about you and what you think about that story, but I'm curious if God came to you and asked you for the most precious possession in your life, what your response would be. I don't know if that's one of your kids, or I don't know if that's your job, I don't know if that's one of your friendships, or it is your money. But what if God came today and asked for the most perfect thing in your life? The most precious possession that you have. Do you know what Abraham's response was? The very next verse after God says that to Abraham, it says, And Abraham woke up early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey. He grabbed firewood and two servants and his son Isaac, and he took him to Mount Moriah. It's like whenever you read the account in Genesis chapter 22, there's zero hesitation in Abraham. There is just this, uh, this abandoned thing inside of him that goes, God, whatever you ask of me, I'll give it to you. You never read one time in that chapter, Abraham waver one bit. And he goes to Mount Moriah, and if you know the story, he, he binds his son on the altar, and he, he, he gets the firewood there, and he raises the knife, and God stops him. 